Welcome to EdTech Speaks, a podcast bringing guests together to share their expertise and advice on navigating business and education in a technology-driven world. From entrepreneurs to vendors, higher education to corporate leaders, we'll uncover their perspective regarding the latest trends and technologies impacting your career or business. Our podcast is made possible by Downing EdTech Consulting, where people and technology connect. Hosted by Cher Downing, an experienced executive spanning a higher education and corporate career with specific focus on the EdTech industry, Dr. Downing is also an international and national presenter, author, and regular media contributor. Now here is your host, EdTech strategist, Dr. Cher Downing. Hi, everyone, and welcome to EdTech Speaks, a podcast where we bring guests together to talk about navigating business and education in a technology-driven world. Our goal is to provide you with options for products and services and the knowledge that can help you benefit yourself or your business. I'm Cher Downing, your host, and I want to introduce today's guest, Ryan with Robots and Pencils. Ryan, I didn't say your last name because I always slaughter last names, so I'll let you say your full name. No problem at all. I've got a tough one. It's Ryan Gelmas. Gelmas. Okay. <laughs> I, I would not have guessed that by the spelling. So yep. <laughs> <laughs> welcome today. So excited to have you on board with us. So excited to hear about robots and pencils. So let's just jump in and talk about how did the company get started and where you've been at and, and where you're at now. Yeah, thanks for having me, Dr. Downing. Really excited to talk to you. So Robots and Pencils was established in 2009. And our founder really kind of had an audacious claim at the time where he, he really felt like mobile was going to change the world. <laughs> and if we think back to 2009, that was still kind of an interesting kind of concept. And so in the early years of Robots and Pencils, we were primarily a iOS development shop, you know, building yeah. iOS native applications. And then over the years, we've evolved a bit. And now we consider ourselves a digital innovation firm. And we help companies maintain a competitive advantage by developing new digital strategies for products. And we focus on three key areas, education, financial services, and retail and consumer goods. Education makes up over 40% of our clientele. And we've worked with all different types of clients from airlines like WestJet to big institutions like the University of Texas, Arizona State University, to you. And then banks like Varro Bank is one, one of our clients as well. So we have about 180 full-time employees, and we range in all types of services, from professional services, from design and engineering, which is really where our name comes from. The robots are our engineers, and our pencils are our designers. And we believe strongly that the intersection of sort of design and technology is, is really where we want to be. We want to have both those robots and pencils at the table at all times. And we think that our experience across these different sectors helps inform the other sectors that we work with. So for example, we have some folks on our team that are game designers, and we think game designers are great people to have at the table when you're talking to educational clients, or even some of the things we've learned in banking, or, or vice versa. You know, that cross-pollination between these sectors is really helpful for us. Me personally, so I'm in my 16th year of online higher education. I cut my teeth at a big for-profit institution 16 years ago in 2007, where I led the student and faculty experiences, mostly leading the experience in our portal. From there, I worked at a, a startup. I was employee number two at a startup out of Carnegie Mellon University called Akatar, where we helped faculty bring their courses online. This was kind of during the heady MOOC era. <laughs> and then from there, I came over to robots. I came over to robots and pencils where I led uh, product design for our educational partners. And then I jumped ship and went over to uh, Western Governors University, where I led UX and uh, UI design there for a couple of years. And now I'm back at Robots and Pencils, and I'm now the head of EdTech product. And we're launching a new product called Student Apps, which I'm excited to talk to you about. Excellent. One of the things that I think our listeners always learn is, for most of us that are in EdTech, we are not on a linear path. We bounce around, we we learn from all of our experiences, and many of us come from different creative backgrounds. 
I think oftentimes it, there's an assumption that we are always software engineer people, that we are we are very diligent in, in how we design and develop things. But it's that creativity that really makes those things come to life. And so I'm excited for our listeners to hear your background and and to uh, understand really just also how how your career has grown almost alongside uh, Robot and Pencils as, as they've grown too. Because for, for those that have been in the industry long enough, we did have these conversations about apps will never be anywhere and MOOCs are going to put down all the universities, they're going to close their doors, we're just going to have free learning forever. And I mean, we've had all these, these crazy concepts over the last 25 years. Some have flushed out, some have not. And so I think what, what's really telling here is that the company has navigated that water and maintained figuring out what's important to people, what's important in terms of product, in terms of services, and really also, more importantly, the relationship, what's helpful in guiding them to get forward. You talked a little bit about the fact that you have 180 full-time employees. I suspect that some of those, if not all of those, are remote workers. Talk to us a little bit about how your, your companies handled that situation. Yeah, that's a great question, Dr. Downing. So our founder really believed in this concept of following the talent. And Robots and Pencils originally started as a Canadian company out of Calgary. And they had a very small office. And over time, what they found was that there were pockets of talent all around North America. So very quickly, they had started to open offices. They opened an office in Denver, which was the first U.S. office. But over time, we quickly realized that the office was kind of an antiquated idea, really, right? And this was right around the time that Slack was really starting to take off. And thinking of, not to use Slack's sort of pitch, but the digital HQ, right? Like, how do you create a office space for workers, regardless of their time zone, regardless of where they sit, and to really focus again on kind of following that talent? And so we were uniquely positioned going into the sort of COVID times of already being an organization that had established itself as being one that worked fully remote. Even though there, we do have these pockets and these offices where we sometimes come together, oftentimes, even though you might be sitting next to somebody, you're not actually working on the same project as them. So it's a little bit more of the water cooler talk or going out to lunch, whereas sure. the bulk of our work is taking place in Zoom in Slack, in these tools, collaborating and working together. And I think that that experience was unique for me when I first came over to uh, Robots and Pencils in 2016, because I had never worked remote before. And I remember it kind of feeling kind of scary, like, well, what's it like when (laughs) there's nobody kind of tapping you on the shoulder? And I felt a little scared to reach out to ask people questions because you didn't want to interrupt them. I'm having a design background. I really believe in flow states and this idea that like, you know, you can kind of look at the person sitting next to you and if their head's down, they got their headphones on, you leave them alone. But when you're staring (laughs) at Slack, you don't, you don't know, like, should I go and digitally tap them on their shoulder or not? And I think that those early lessons of, of, for myself to kind of become more acquainted with how remote work works really informed, going back to the ed tech side, really informed me more on what it is like to be an online student. Because I, I personally had never studied online aside from some professional courses. I certainly didn't take a, a full degree program there. And I thought it was really interesting to recognize that you have to sort of design these opportunities for people to collide with one another. If you haven't created these collision spaces and these opportunities for people to sort of meet and and to interact and to have something to focus on, then otherwise they they very well could feel like I did in my early days and go, well, I don't know if I should reach out or if I should raise my hand because I'm not entirely sure how to interact in this space. No, I think that is just kudos to to your founder and, and your teams for realizing early on the value of when you really need work time and when you really need people time, as I like to call it. But more so, unbeknownst to you, it really made navigating the pandemic much easier, as opposed to everyone else who suddenly was at home. And, you know, I remember talking to people saying, I have an off- a home office where I like pay bills and stuff, but I realize I don't have enough outlets to plug in everything for what I need for work. People were doing crazy things during the pandemic. And it was it was almost kind of fun to see when, you know, Zoom 
would come on and see what people had behind them and where they were at. I remember one woman sitting in her master closet because it was the only place with a door in her house that her kids wouldn't bother her, the dogs, you know, everything else. So she's literally sitting on the floor in her closet holding her Zoom meetings all day. It was and just, it really it was spoke insane. to how quick people are willing to adapt too, right? Because I remember mm-hmm. those first couple of the very early days where you would see a naked child running in the background <laughs> or there'd be all kinds of noise and, and dogs and cats, although most of us like to see the dogs and cats, right? But then how quickly people evolved, you know, how fast mm-hmm. they suddenly have a better microphone or they have lighting or or they have a standing desk or it really just kind of showed the resiliency, I think, of people in general and how we just kind of learn to adapt. And now I think interestingly, as as you read all these interesting articles about how some companies are trying to claw these folks yeah. back into the office. And I know universities that had to very quickly shift their operations to an online world. And now I think they're kind of in that state of, well, do we keep investing in online? How do we really do hybrid correctly? Or do we just really try to drag all these learners back into the campus where we've paid for these expensive rock climbing walls and fancy dorms and things <laughs> like that, that sort of enticed people for a lot of years. So it, it's, it's, it was really, it, it, it was nice to kind of feel prepared to be a little ahead of the curve. <laughs> sure, sure. No, and I think you're exactly right. We are resilient and we do, we do adapt, although age has a definite factor on that. I always tell mm-hmm. people that I lived half my life without technology and half my life with technology, which is always a telltale sign of how old I am. But we got our first computer in our high school, one. They bought one and stuck it in the library when I was a senior. And it was like a big deal. Now you can't walk into a high school without tablets and computers and everything everywhere. So our younger population have never known not having all of this around. And so I think one of the statements you you gave to me that I loved was, the focus is on preparing students for unknown futures and careers that may not exist yet. And I think the pandemic was one way of seeing that. We never thought the world could go remote. People would have t- would have bet their life on it. People told you for years, our company can never be remote. There's no way we could have our doors open. And then they found out they could. It's not ideal, maybe, for some situations, but it could be done for all of you as you're working on products and and services for people, you're already recognizing there's an unknown out there. We don't know what's around the corner, whether it's technological advancement, it's a new career, it's how we do things. You're already preparing people for that. And I know you've got a new app for it called Student Apps. And I'd love to hear about kind of your premise for how you keep that line of focus when you're building and you're looking at what's next? Yeah, that's a really great question. I think back to my own experience being a young person. I was raised by elementary school teachers. And I think the only future that I could think of for myself was maybe be a teacher or maybe be a filmmaker because I loved, you know, the movies of of Tim Burton or something. And I think that it just kind of went to show because, you know, I I was born in 77, so I'm going to be 46 this year. And what was really interesting about that time was that there was still like the guidance counselors in high school. I remember they would say like, you're never going to believe this. This is going to sound radical, but you might actually have two or three jobs you know, in your future. It's not going to be like your parents that worked at the still mills or whatever it might be. And I think that having come up through that, this, that, that technology shift that we've just talked about, right? Like kind of not having computers and then suddenly the entire (laughs) world turning around on us and, and being the type, I think a lot of us who have adapted and have changed and have figured out how to use this stuff and think that I never in a million years I don't think anyone when I was 17 years old talked about UX design, product (laughs) management, certainly not digital product management. And I think now, you know, just the other day I was reading about like ChatGPT and about how a new career might be just being the person who knows how to write the prompts to elicit the responses (laughs) out of these AI tools to uh, watching some of my fellow pencils at Robots and Pencils who are working with these really cool tools for image generation and stuff and and seeing how already there's a disparity between 
those that are learning how to get really good at writing those prompts and then watching the output that they're getting out of it versus me who's maybe saying, oh, like a cat with a funny hat on it and a tie, you know. <laughs> and so it's, it is it is really interesting. I think that student apps and, you know, in a way, student apps is something that I hold really near and dear and was really excited to come back to Robots and Pencils and Lead because I think in a way it focuses on sort of the fundamentals that I think are often lost in online higher education and and not just online higher education, but in education in general. And what I mean by that, I'll give you a, a premise is in product management, we often hear the phrase like, don't ship the org chart. Like if you're Amazon, that might mean like, well, the users don't care about how the package gets to your house as long as it gets to your house and it gets there in 24 <laughs> hours. And I think that colleges are notoriously bad and no slight against them. I've been inside of them. I know it's difficult work, but they're notoriously bad at sort of shipping the org chart, right? It's like, this Absolutely. is financial aid. This is mm-hmm. enrollment. This is academics. This is career services. This is student affairs. And inevitably what happens is these different parts of the organization are all vying for your attention. And they're putting a lot of noise in that signal. And I think that what institutions need to really realize is that their product is this experience. I don't think they think of it that way. I think that a lot of big institutions still think of it as their campus and their brand and their name and their history. And that's part of it. But I don't think they recognize that the experience that that learner is going through on the first day, the 20th day, the six months in, four years later as an alumni is actually your product. And so what Student Apps tries to do is to create this experience layer that helps bring this together in a meaningful way for that learner. And that's really our central focus is to really think about the learner at the center of the experience. I know a lot of people say that. And when I talk to learners, whether it's in focus groups or UX research, or you read all the surveys, especially when we work with an institution and they'll open up the doors to all the research that they've been doing for years, I find that it really boils down. Students will tell you like, oh, I really wish that I could see my grades on this screen or that screen, or I I really wish I got my exam results as a push notification. So that's great. And you could put that on your roadmap and you could work through that. But what I think is that they're really still kind of missing the forest for the trees, because when when you really stand back from all the research that you see with learners, what they really want to understand is they want the answers to the basic journalistic questions of like, who, what, when, where, why? Yep. What do I need to do? When do I need to do it by? (laughs) Where do I need to go? Whether it's a digital destination or a physical destination, who can help me? And I think the all important one that we often miss is why? Why should I even Mm -hmm. bother doing this? How will it help me in my career? How will it move me forward? And I think that when we take all this together, this is part of the confusion that that we cause for our learners is because we don't take the time to sit down and think about what an optimal path for a learner should be. We don't design these experiences. We sort of prop up a bunch of tools. We we set up LMSs, we set up SISs, we, we have CRMs, we have buildings, we have faculty, we have support staff, we have coaches, we have all these things. But what we don't do is stand back and design them in such a way to really put that learner at the center and to focus on answering those five journalistic questions for them over and over again so that they can support themselves so that they can have agency to kind of move through that. And student apps is our way of accomplishing that. And what we've done is we've built a a platform that's powered by Salesforce. And it has an iOS, an Android, a web, and a Slack interface that really does the job of taking all these disparate pieces and organizing them into a learner's journey and presenting that learner's journey to them in a way that's easy for them to access, where they always have access to those that can help them. And that essentially answers those five journalistic questions. That is fantastic. And I say that from a personal experience, having spent a bulk of my career in higher ed, we were always very siloed and people were required to move from one silo to another. And the difficulty is, is that the silos didn't always talk to each other. So even though you gave your information over here, you might have to go give your information again to a different silo. 
which can be ultimately frustrating. And then we focused on the full-time student. We didn't focus on the part-time student. We didn't focus on the person who was coming once a year. Everybody got treated the same, though they weren't having the same journey, as you're saying. But I think more importantly, we, over the years, forgot that they were a consumer. I've always said that we look at them as a student and we assume that students should move through education just like they do in K through 12. They learn, we push them forward. They learn, we push them forward. I have always thought that higher ed should model after the cruise lines. When you sign up for a cruise, there's a theme or there's a focus of that particular boat. And then they outline based on all of your interests and what you want to achieve. Maybe you've never done an activity, but you'd like to learn how to do it. And then when you get on that boat, your agenda is set out, your experiences are set out, there are people to answer your questions, to validate your concerns. They really, even though there can be 6,000 people floating, every person is, is treated like an individual. And that's something that I think higher ed, we've missed time and time again, even during the pandemic, we failed to understand that now we have to treat people as if we were only an online school. Services are not there. And I know you know this over the years when I've helped faculty train to move into online. One of the simplest examples I've always given them is think about it when people are leaving your classroom and one person walks up and says, hey, do we need to have a one inch margin? I said, what do you do? Mm -hmm. You yell out, hey, everybody, wait a sec. Great question up here. Make sure you have a one inch margin. Everybody makes note of it and moves on. The few people that already left early miss that piece of information, but it's a very small percentage, probably less than 3%. I said, but now when you're online, I send you an email and I say, what's the margin? I said, and the next person sends you an email. What's the margin? And the next person, I said, and you as a faculty member get upset because you've gotten 27 emails with the same question. Why? Because you didn't give them that information ahead of time and you didn't set up a way to have that conversational piece in your course. And so, you know, I'm excited that that you all are doing this because I think we missed that where we really could have had an impact while everybody was online. And even now, if they shift back to hybrid, catering to their experience would move with them as opposed to still having to rebuild things all over again. Yeah, no, I love your analogy about the cruise ship. I'm going to steal that. <laughs> I, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, we talk, I use the phrase a lot, and I'm sure I stole this somewhere as well, but I use the phrase, you know, just in time, just for you at the point of need, right? And again, yeah. I think going back to the problem that we're trying to solve is an institution might send 40 emails to a learner in the first week. And it's kind of like, oh my goodness, how are they ever going to have the agency to sift through all that information? And again, I have empathy for the universities. I've worked for them. And it's tough because, you know, the librarian is desperate to talk about all the awesome things that the library can do. Well, yeah. that's a great example. If we have the data and if we know that a learner is encountering a big research project for the first time across their academic journey with this particular institution, then we can target a message or a to-do to that learner just in time, just for them at the point of need that says, hey, did you know, we, or we know that you have this big research opportunity coming up. Now would be a great time to go check out our writing center or our research center or some other ancillary service that the library folks might offer you. Or, you know, how student affairs might want to talk about wellness program. And if they're talking about a wellness program on the first day when everybody else is also bombarding you, then the likelihood <laughs> of it resonating with the learner is probably not as high. But if you know that they have a really big high stakes exam, and you, mm -hmm. can in, you can intercept that maybe the day of and say, hey, let's do a breathing exercise. You know, I know you're freaking out because you got, you've got an online proctor who's staring into your personal <laughs> space and is asking you about your ID and kind of freaking you out. How about either right after that or before that, we take a moment and do some breathing. And then, oh, by the way, this is just a little taste of what you can find in our wellness center, right? I think that yeah. will have so much more of an impact on a learner than just a, a portal or something that has a bunch of blinking messages at them or competing messages or, or a bunch of emails being blasted out to them. And 
I think that what universities need to do and higher education institutions at large need to do is they really need to, to get together and think about what these sort of golden paths are, these happy paths. Because I think that when you talk to institutions, they say things like, We're, we desperately want to be able to have these interventions, like the ones I just mentioned about the library mm -hmm. or, or about you know logging in consistently or attendance or whatever it might be. But then you quickly realize, well, okay, what mechanisms are you using to track that? How do you know when they're <laughs> off the path if you don't know what the path is? And so they sort of want to jump to the future without having yet done the hard, laborious work of figuring out what these stepping stones are. And, and to your point earlier, those stepping stones aren't going to be the same for every learner. And no. so it's a complicated task. And that's why we think, you know, a tool like Salesforce being a CRM that's really focused on an individual and not so right. much a cohort. Like we, I have a, I have a coworker who talks a lot about how, and I'm not here to pick on the SISs or the LMSs, you know, they're friends of mine, <laughs> but <laughs> they are very focused around the cohort, right? Like, oh, yes. this is a class of learners or this is a yep. program. And I think that what sort of where we saw the real value in building a product on top of Salesforce was that by its very nature, being a CRM, by it focusing on an individual learner, an individual customer, as you said earlier, right? Then you can serve their needs a lot better than you can when they are, well, they're a freshman or they're in English 101 or they're a financial sure. aid payer or they're not a financial aid payer, right? That type of thing. Well, and I think for our listeners who who have minimal higher ed background, maybe you're in technology or maybe you're in business looking to do business with, with higher education, the playing field has changed. Kids used to graduate from college or from high school and they went into college and they were all a freshman and they were all at the same level and they all took the same courses. And you moved in that cohort-based style all the way through your program. So unless you failed a course or got out of sequence or took a semester off, majority of you graduated together four years later which is why they used to do the old adage, you know, look to your left, look to your right. One of you isn't going to be a graduation. Fast forward to now, kids are taking extra courses through AP when they're in high school. They're doing community college. They're doing products like Udemy and Coursera and transferring all those courses in. So now someone's coming in technically as an 18-year-old first-year student. Notice I didn't say freshman first year student, they could be coming in as a sophomore because they've already gotten their freshman courses out of the way. So they're not interested in hearing the freshman academic side of things. They're beyond that already. What they are interested in hearing is what happens if there's a fire in my building? Where do I go when I get sick? Can I get uh, medication delivered to me? I have an eating allergy situation. So where can I get the type of food that I can eat? Those are the things that are impactful to that same first-year student as their roommate who truly is coming in as a freshman. No previous coursework mm -hmm. starting at the beginning. But you can't say, oh, well, hey, these two roommates are exactly alike. They're both freshmen. Doesn't work that way anymore. And so we've got to figure out a way to really give that customization to people not only for those students, it's an expectation with their parents because their parents are supporting them to go through quickly, get out of school in three years instead of four, start their graduate work. So many schools now have incubators. Students are, are starting in their ed tech field early, doing startups, creating things. And so their paths are different. And having that constant where, hey, this is my go-to resource. This is where I go to find out this is going to give me the things that I'm interested in and I want to know now, not all the other stuff that I either don't need to know now or I'm beyond it or I never needed to know it in the first place. Think about when you change majors. You know, if I'm still getting all the information from my previous major and all the information from my new major, pretty soon it's just noise and I'm not reading anything. So I think the product is, is ripe for this time for what our current day student and what our future student expects. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I, I think that, you know, when we think about the 80-year curriculum concepts that you hear a lot of really smart people talking about, the idea of, you know, lifelong learning, upskilling, 
And then to your point, there are still some of those students that are coming in with that fresh right out of high school no college experience, um, some with helicopter parents. But we also have to think about that student who doesn't have helicopter parents and mm-hmm. and doesn't have that the same opportunities or, or doesn't have someone running around doing all their financial aid for them behind the scenes. And, oh, don't worry about it, kid. <laughs> Just pack your bags and think about what post you're going to hang on the dorm wall. We have to think about those other students that are also fighting tooth and nail to try to navigate a really tricky financial aid situation or what you know whatever these processes may be and again i think it goes back to that too much of shipping the org chart like i have seen in some really gross situations where a university will actually like explain the entire process to a learner, like their process, you know, like, oh, you're a status four. <laughs> and in order to become a status five, and and that's kind of my call to action for institutions and, and, and people in our field to just really take a step back and think about, is that really the product? Mm-hmm. Is that the experience that you want your learners to have for them to have to understand the institutional processes <laughs> of your organization? Or do you want them to feel supported, to feel like they have agency over their path forward, to feel as though they're an individual and are being treated as one? And I, I hope the answer to the, all those questions would be yes, that's what we want. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. The other thing I think of is as we go after more and more specific audiences, so universities right now are offering big scholarships, big opportunities for first-generation low-income students. And that is that is wonderful because it gives them a great opportunity, but they are even farther removed from the process than students who have had parents who have attended universities who understand, at least at a broad level, how things work. And so we really oftentimes, I think part of their lack of success comes from our inundation of information and forcing them Mm -hmm. to make decisions when they don't even understand the question. So I think the app has a real opportunity to help those students as well to start to filter out what is important. I think back to financial aid has a deadline of March 1st, and the people that work in financial aid hate the week before because all the apps come in at the last minute. Well, why? Because they send out emails that say, don't forget March 1st, don't forget March 1st. They never say to them, if you get it done sooner, we can give you an answer sooner. If you already have this, it will take you less time to pull it out because you already did it last year. You just have to update your information. We never give them those those points and pieces that might make them do it sooner and might cut down that workload. Instead, we make it sound like this big, horrific thing in this horrible deadline. And then everybody waits till the last minute does it. And then the financial aid people just drowned in paperwork and processing for a couple of weeks, which is why you don't see anybody from those departments. They just like disappear for the month of April. <laughs> you know, No, absolutely. And I think even just in, I think you made a great point about how it kind of can feel a little bit like being in a horror movie. I, I think even just thinking about the way that we use language and being supportive when we design these to-dos or these, these steps in the, in the learning journey. Like, for example, I remember working on a project where working in for-profit higher ed for a while, a lot of our students were selected for what's called FA verification, financial aid verification, mm-hmm. where they have to supply extra documents. And that could be a real pain because sometimes you're asking your parents for their W-4 mm-hmm. or whatever it might be from two years ago or whatever it is. But if you even just start off by simply saying, you've been selected for FA verification, this is what that means. Don't worry. of other students just like you, right? Those types of prompts. And again, that sort of careful design and thoughtfulness about what the actual experience is like, I think can go a long way towards providing that sort of sense of automation and agency and, and, and driving the students to complete things on time versus bombarding them with a bunch of different emails or or what I hate to see is nowadays a lot of these systems that we employ at, at the campuses they will send their own automated messaging and the universities won't even recognize that that's happening it's like are universities <laughs> even taking the time to audit what systems are even barking at your learners and and you know so again i think student apps can really help with that because what we can do is when we work with universities we we really take a lot of care 
to say, like, let's sit down, let's think about the learner journey, let's create these happy paths to start with, let's test and learn from those. But then over time, we can start to say, okay, well, what happens if that student were selected for FA verification? Well, what does that journey look like? Or this person's a cash payer, so they have a completely different experience than a Title IV learner. Things like that. I think that variation, as we've said, it's, it's you know, treating putting the learner at the center is hard work and is going to take time. But I think if universities accept the challenge and, and begin down that path, I think they'll see that at the end of the day, it really delights the learner. And it allows staff to focus their attention where it matters. Because as you said earlier, I, I often talk about Peter and Paul, right? Like, I'm in financial aid. I'm I'm calling you a hundred times a day <laughs> to try to get you to turn in your free application for federal student aid on time, so I can get the ICER back or whatever. And what I don't realize is right across the hall, Peter is also bombarding you with phone calls, trying to get you to register for your first class. And meanwhile, <laughs> that learner might only have a relationship with the admissions rep or something, and so they're just kind of throwing their hands up in the air and going, "Well, someone will call me." And yet, how many people do you know today that even want to answer the phone? You know, I know I don't, right? (laughs) And and especially young people, I don't even think they know that the phone works that way, right? It's, It's like, and so if we really take that time to put that path out in front of them and and let them tackle those things, but have that support when they need it, I think that's going to open up the opportunity for all this call bombardment or all this email bombardment to settle down and, and for us to be able to use our human resources, which are the most vital resources that we have on a campus to do higher order things, to be able to understand more about who that individual is, to, to learn more about them, to you know enter more data about them into a tool like a CRM so that we can serve them better rather than just dialing endless phone numbers all day long and leaving endless voice messages that quite frankly, oftentimes aren't returned. And I'll just (laughs) add to that, you know, early in my career, one of the things that my current, the current CEO of Robots and Pencils, Tracy Zimmerman, who I've worked with for years now, one of the greatest things she ever did back when we worked together at a different institution was she had every single withdrawal form that a student filled out who dropped out of our university that came to our team. We were called the Web Strategies Team. And it really left an impression on me that because these students blame themselves, it's mm-hmm. sad because they'll say, I'm so sorry, I'm dropping out because my mom is sick or something's going on or, or I just have too much stress in my life right now. And what oftentimes happens is we as the institution don't recognize that it, it's really on us, that they're blaming mm-hmm. themselves because they're overwhelmed. They're blaming themselves yeah. because they didn't have the right apparatus to reach out for help when they needed it. And I think we need to do all that we can to not have that learner blame themselves and drop out, particularly in in some of these segments of students that you were talking about earlier, first-time learners, people who've never gone to college before. How can we support them more? Well, it's simply by telling them who, what, when, where, why. (laughs) Not to repeat that line over and over again. (laughs) Well, and sometimes people just disappear. I mean, look at the percentages of students that we say, oh, they just disappeared. They stopped going to class. We never heard from them again. They didn't withdraw. So they got all Fs on their transcript, you know, which will come back to haunt them in years later if they ever decide to go back to school again. What we don't realize is we made it so difficult for them to figure out how to get out that they just walked away. When you talk to those students, and we, I was at an institution where we did this one year, we pulled all the disappearing people And we reached out to them and we said, why did you leave? And what can we do for you? And did you know you're getting all Fs? And of course, the first response was, no, I'm going to go somewhere else next semester. The majority of the students we talked to couldn't figure out how to withdraw. And they're like, well, I, I went to the registrar's office and they said, Something about you can only withdraw after a certain date. And before that date, you have to get a refund. And uh, and, and we just, it, it was just too much. Mm-hmm. Now, having worked on that side of it, I know exactly what they told them was we have a, a date that we align with. And that's where we do our first headcount report from. And then after that date, you're allowed to withdraw, but prior to that, you are being removed from the university and you have to apply to get all your money back and pay back financial aid and all that. But these people were actually being told all of this when they would go into the registrar's office. 
So consequently, they were just like, forget it. I'll just not come back. You know, just move out of the dorm this yeah, weekend. It, It'll be fine. It was just, too much, it, it right? Was, yeah, it was too much. And it, and it was too much at a time where one of the students had a parent that passed away. And she was like, you know, I just needed to get home. And I couldn't find anyone that would help me with this. She said, I left voicemails. You know, I sent emails. And then finally, somebody reached out and said I was missing a form. And I needed to walk over and sign it. And she's like, I've already left. You know, I've driven home. The funeral's tomorrow kind of thing. And they're like, well, you're going to get all Fs then. She's like, that was the response I, was I got. <laughs> I was working with an institution recently and there was, uh, I think she was a VP of, you know, student success or something like that. And and she, she said this great line. It was, we sort of digitized the runaround, right? Like, cause that uh-huh. runaround that you're, that you're talking about, I think all of us from, a, you know, if you go back 20 years, that, that was like the classic college experience, right? Like, oh, you got to run from this building to that building, or <laughs> you're trying to pay your fine, or you're trying to find out why you didn't get your grades. And it turns out that you have an overdue book you know, at the library and you have to run to the library and you have to go over here and you have to go over there. And unfortunately, we've done a lot of, we've taken a lot of that and just digitized it now. It's sort of like, oh, well, you know, okay, you want to withdraw. Oh, we have to call this other number or you have to go over to this other section of the portal or the website that you've never seen before or the intranet or whatever it might be. And you have to go download that and then God forbid, maybe fax it somewhere or do something crazy with it. And I think that that, again, just comes back to how can we put these resources, people, technologies and align them to that learner and put them at the point of need? Because otherwise, I I think you're absolutely right. People are going to fall through the cracks. People are going to be stressed out. And like you said, I don't think I think about that enough about the, the harm that that can cause that particular learner in the future that they might not realize right now. They're too stressed to deal with. And then, you know, when it does come time for them to come back to school, they a bunch of Fs on your on your um, transcript is not going to do you any good. So talk to us a little bit about, because we've talked a lot about the app and, and how it works and all, but what are you hearing about the success rate for it? That's a great question. So we are in the really early stages right now. We're actually just kind of um, launching a pilot here in the spring with, sorry, the summer with some bigger rollouts in the fall. What we're already hearing, though, just from the implementation side of this is how excited universities are to start to break down those silos, to get folks into the room, to really start to realize, oh, like, I didn't even realize you guys were sending all those messages and we're sending all those messages and we could combine them or we could think about our tasks in a a responsible way. I think one of the other things that we have found with the universities, and I would say that this is, and I know you know, different institutions are at different levels, but oftentimes there isn't a key owner of Mm -hmm. the student experience. And I don't just mean the learning experience. I mean, you know, like sometimes there's a chief academic officer, obviously there's the provost, there's, there's folks like that. And now you're starting to hear about chief digital officers at universities, although sometimes you meet them and you're not entirely sure exactly what they do. So just the idea that there's somebody whose job it is to really look across all those silos and to try to help them work through, well, what is this experience of, because it's not just like you move through financial aid and then you're done with it. Because to your point, financial aid comes back around, right? Admit or enrollment comes back around. Things like student affairs and wellness and career services should be embedded all along the way from day one, all the way through graduation and beyond. And so how do you sort of start to organize that? And that's some of the success, the early success that we're seeing are just the kind of moment of enlightenment that mm. organizations are excited to engage in this kind of work because they see it as being important and necessary to help really support learner success. And then our hope is that once we have these things in the hands of uh, the learners at scale, we'll be able to learn much more about how do you fine tune the language? How do you build additional steps or how do you combine steps to adjust to all the various um, types of learners that are out there today? That's exciting because for all of us that build products, for all of us that purchase products, we always know there's that dreaded learning curve of implementation and self-discovery in any business, in any in any corporation, in any small business, any entrepreneur. You really don't focus on what you don't know until you do an implementation. And then suddenly you realize just how fragmented things are. 
a friend of mine always says, you know, it's like having a multi-plug, but you have more plugs than outlets. She's like, well, how do you prioritize? Well, you know, do you plug in your screen or do you plug in your TV? She said, you know, it's it's just that simple. You just have to start looking through it and such. So I think this is a, a, a fabulous opportunity. And I really want to have you come back next year and, and talk to us once you have some data and, and hear about what the students are thinking of it and and uh, how things are rolling out. But is there anything else you want to share with us today? Thank you for your time, Dr. Downing. I, I, I will add, I think, you know, one of the things that we are seeing through these implementations, I think you made a great point just now, is that not letting great get in the way of sort of good enough to get started. I think that's one of the things that we're seeing in the space is that as we talk to folks about building optimal learner journeys, using tools like a CRM to power them, people can get overwhelmed because they go, well, we have to unlock all of this data. And there's some truth to that, right? Like if if we don't yep. take the time to understand where the data is being held today, getting that data into the right tools so that you can action off of it. But there is still something to be said for even just pointing to the pieces of the disparateness. So for example, you might have a completely different system that you have to put money on your meal card, right? And yes, wouldn't it be great if that were fully integrated and we knew when the student had money on their meal card and when they don't, we could do all these really cool things. And yes, that's a long-term goal. But even just beginning by saying, well, you know, when's the best time to remind the student that they have a meal card and that it needs to be charged (laughs) or that it needs to be recharged. And let's drive them to that even if it is a disparate experience to start. And then over time, we can use the data to realize where the really significant bumps in the road are. Because maybe the meal card thing really isn't that significant. You know, yeah, it might be a totally Mm -hmm. disparate system. We are not getting any really great data out of it. But you know what? Maybe students are handling that one really well. But maybe when it comes to making their decision about their next course or maybe the difficult decision of switching programs and understanding what the ramifications of switching those programs are. Well, having richer data is going to be much more meaningful in our ability to deliver that customized learner experience. So I would just say that I think for the audience members who are listening in, don't become overwhelmed by thinking that everything has to be perfect right out of the gate. Because I think that I'm sure you've worked on projects and I know I have in the past too, where I think if you spend too much time sort of designing for the perfect, you kind of never get there, right? And you kind of keep kind of Mm -hmm. contemplating your your navel a little bit too long. Whereas if you're just willing to roll up your sleeves and say, we're going to make this better and we're going to take a stab at this and we'll keep tweaking it and making it better every year, every semester, every quarter, whatever it might be. I think that's the message that I'd like to leave uh, the listeners with is, is, you know, don't don't let great get in the way of good enough. I think that is so valuable. We get paralyzed and we want a perfect product. And the thing is, someone told me many, many years ago that said, people don't know what they don't know. So their expectation for the experience is only based on what they're seeing in front of them. You're thinking of all these other things behind the curtain that need to be done and need to be better. And they don't know to look for that. They're not looking Mm -hmm. for it because they don't know enough. But the other thing is, especially when you're working with students, students love being part of a beta. If they can give you feedback, if they can be part of the experience, they love that. There's been many a time where we've run something and would give away, you know, Starbucks cards or Amazon cards Mm -hmm. or something for feedback. And by gosh, students will do it. And they don't hold back. They'll tell you, I wish it did this. Or why does it do this? This doesn't seem, you know, this is clunky or I think in in higher education, we got so fascinated with the single sign-on, the SSO option, that then we became just enamored with everything has to go through one doorway because it will be easier. Well, that's based on 20 years ago when people were struggling to understand technology. You look at a student's phone, they've got a couple hundred apps on there. They don't have a single sign-on to those couple hundred apps. They go into each of them individually. They sign in differently. Some have a passcode, some have a password, some have a username, some use their email. They don't care because those apps add value to their life. And if it adds value, Mm -hmm. they're going to use it regardless of what they're asked for. So I think sometimes when we get behind, we hide behind that shield of, oh, it doesn't work into our SSO. They don't care about that. If they can get to something, get the answers they want when they need it, they're happy. You nailed it. It's all about delivering 
that value, right? Because a learner will quickly, that's the great other great thing about a student, right? They will tell you to your face, like, this stinks. I don't want to use yeah. this. <laughs> <laughs> you know, increasingly, I'm noticing, like, it's funny because I think post-COVID, a lot of the studies that we're doing when we talk to students these days, especially these students that were sort of shoved into Zoom and Canvas or whatever, you know, kind of against their will and maybe with faculty that didn't quite know how to how to use it is there's a certain fatigue with those tools right now, right? Where people are kind of mm-hmm. like, oh, not another LMS thing. I don't want to have to go yeah. inside there. And so I just think that, you know, it's incumbent upon all of us that build this technology to really think about like, what is a consumer grade experience like for these users? Because they don't want to be forced into tools that they don't want to use. And, you know, unfortunately, sometimes they are. So I think the last thing I'd leave you with, our downing, is if anyone wants to learn more, robotsandpencils.com. If you are in the Salesforce ecosystem, you can look up student apps in the Salesforce App Exchange. We're in there. And there's a, a way to reach out to us there, too. So really appreciate your time today. It was great Fantastic. speaking with you. Fantastic. This has been so much fun. And for our listeners, I encourage you not to just reach out in terms of Robots and Pencils, but also look at what they're doing with finance, what they're doing with business, and really just their holistic view of how they're moving the world forward and how they're driving things differently. I think there's a lot of lessons to be learned from robots and pencils. So Ryan, thank you so much for being here today. For all our listeners, we'll include the information on Spotify and wherever you stream your podcasts. We'll also have it on our own website, www.downingedtech.com so that you can reach out and talk with them as well. So until next time, thanks everyone for attending and keep learning. Thank you for listening to EdTech Speaks with EdTech strategist Cher Downing. To learn more about the services Downing EdTech and its staff can provide you, find us at www.downingedtech.com. If you enjoyed today's podcast, be sure to share it. We'd also like to hear from you regarding any suggestions for topics or guests and the value you received from our show. Check back for new podcasts with featured guests at www.downingedtech.com backslash podcast. Thank you.